Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I am here with Zazu from The Lion King. That's, that's good. I just used Lion King in my children's devotion last Sunday. Uh, that's right. Uh, and today we are going to be studying the book of Hebrews. And uh, in honor of that, I thought that I would bring along a souvenir uh, while we are recording. I have a yarmulke uh, that I got in the Holy Land, and uh, that can be a reminder of uh, what book we're in. We're studying the book of Hebrews. Well, if I would have known that, I would have brought my shofar. Ooh, you think we could hear you? Maybe next week you can give us a blowing of the shofar on on the podcast. Probably not. No? No. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to start with chapter 1, and uh, this is the uh, opening uh, verses where... Well, we, well we, don't, we don't know who wrote it. Um, one of the things I always like to say is uh, it could have been a woman. Uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila were uh, two uh, believers who taught Apollos when he was uh, needing to receive some instruction in the faith. And so some have suggested maybe it was Priscilla uh, who wrote the Hebrews. But uh, others have suggested it was Apollos because Apollos was a pretty gifted speaker. And uh, whoever wrote Hebrews is very good with words and writes very polished Greek. Um, uh, some have said Paul, but it doesn't really seem like the style of Paul. What are your... Yeah, some have said Luke. Okay. But then they were concerned that Luke doesn't seem to be a Jew, and so that maybe it's not him. Others have thought of Barnabas as the author, but Luther thought that Apollos was it. Uh, Origen, who was one of the early church fathers, he summed up what can be said about the author of Hebrews, quote, who wrote the epistle in truth, God knows. (laughs) Although I told Jeremy the other day when I said, yeah, Hebrews is a tough book. There's a lot of stuff in here. But I said uh, facetiously that I could have written it just because it quotes the Old Testament so much. You just kind of throw Old Testament scripture in there and call it a New Testament epistle. There, there are. There are a lot of Old Testament. But the writer is writing to people who seem to be tempted to uh, fall back into the um, non-Christian Jewish beliefs. Uh, or the, the, the whole point of Judaism was to look for the Messiah to come. And then when the Messiah did come, uh, there were people that said, we still kind of want to stick with the uh, Old Testament and, and even vehemently said that, like the Apostle Paul persecuting people when he was Saul. Uh, wanted to stick with those old customs and traditions. And uh, th- that's what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to say. He's, or, or she, is trying to say uh, Christ is superior. Now that Christ is here, we don't need to uh, trust in those foreshadowings of the... Uh, you know, actually, I'm going to change this slightly, tr- tr- my train of thought here. Um, I never heard that Barnabas thing before, and I almost immediately loved that mm. because I, I've always I've always sort of leaned toward Apollos. I think that's probably the likeliest one is Apollos. But now that you say Barnabas, what is do you, do you know the name Barnabas means? Son of encouragement. Yeah. Okay. Son of encouragement. And what is the tone throughout this book? Is constantly saying, "Let us." Let us. He's constantly used the cohortative of uh, saying, saying, let us do this, let us do that, and, and offering some very good encouragement. And when I was beginning my study on this the other day, I was reminded that uh, I had written a sermon series for us in the Racine area a number of years ago, but it was on the book of Hebrews. And it was all, the title of the sermon series was A Better Savior. And just looking at how many times, and I'll refer to him as the writer, uh, the writer brings up uh, things that are better. A better hope, a better covenant, a better sacrifice, a better country, a better mediator, greater than Moses, greater than the tabernacle. And we'll see right away in the first few verses of chapter 1, superior to the angels. So I just thought that was a, an interesting series that I think the Holy Spirit gave me to give to the other brothers and then preach on a better Savior. And I think that really that was a good way of summarizing a lot of Hebrews because our people don't know this book. 
I have to offer a word of apology. Um, Pastor Zazu here uh, was very gracious and brought the recording equipment out to Shoreland Lutheran High School to my classroom so we could record it here uh, while I wait for my son to get done with wrestling practice. And uh, if you happen to hear any rambunctious teenagers uh, or athletes in the background as they traipse through the hallways, uh, that's that's the reason for that. They are rambunctious, my goodness. Yeah. They, they're like the, sound like the four-year-olds in my building. <laughs> It probably, yeah, just the difference of size is about it. <laughs> um, so uh, chapter one is uh, actually an epistle. It's a historic epistle for Christmas Day uh, in the in the one-year lectionary. And uh, I think it's in other lectionaries too. But it's a, a great reminder because one of the first things that the uh, writer to the Hebrews says uh, well, he, talk, he tackles a lot. I'm, I'm going to say he just for the sake of fluidity here. But um, uh, he tackles a lot of issues of things that Jewish people could get fixated on. They could get fixated on the uh, tabernacle. They could get fixated on the priesthood. They could get fixated on, uh, well, the, the, he starts off with angels. Uh, the Old Testament is full of stories of angels visiting people and doing things for people, miracles of angels. And uh, it, it could be very easy for believers, uh, even before Christ came, to think, wow, angels are marvelous creatures, and they are. I think we don't spend enough time talking about the the spirit helpers that God sends for us. Uh, but it seems like whoever the writer was uh, talking to was th these people were seems to seem to have been having an unholy fixation on angels, and so uh, I'm just going to say Barnabas. I, I like that uh, Barnabas or the writer, seems to be lovingly and gently pointing out, no, Jesus is superior to the angels. Yeah, and one of the things that he mentions uh, before he even gets to the angels is, you know, who Jesus is. Uh, you know, in verse 3, I thought that was an interesting way that the writer describes Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of the divine nature. And that Greek word translated uh, exact imprint is used to describe the process of minting coins. So it refers to the image struck on the coin which was meant to be the exact representation of the person pictured. So the idea here is that Jesus' divine nature is identical. It is, it's an exact imprint of God the Father. Uh, this sentence is making clear that Jesus, as God's Son, is equal to the Father in every way. And there I thought of uh, this part of the Athanasian Creed. We believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man. He is God, eternally begotten from the nature of the Father, and He is man. Born in time from the nature of His mother, fully God, fully man, with rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as to His deity, less than the Father as to His humanity. And then going to where you were talking, Jeremy, then he goes on to explain why that means he is greater than the angels. And I think with the, the whole coin imprinting thing, it, it's also important to say, like, you could have, uh, that right actually in the back of the classroom there, I've got a statue of Martin Luther, and you could say that is an exact representation of Martin Luther. But we did not use Martin Luther to make that exact representation. The, the, uh, we did not go to his grave in Wittenberg and dig up uh, his body and use the remains to make that statue. Um, it, when Jesus is a replication of the Father, it, it's also the, the essence of the Father that, that, we, that is used that makes that repli replication. Um, there was one other thing, actually, that I told, thank you for pointing me back to Christ and uh, to the earlier verses of this chapter, because one really big thing I've skipped that I wanted to talk about is um, enthusiasm. Okay. And by enthusiasm, I don't mean the positive uh, uh, peppy type of mood. I mean the uh, proclivity that people have to want to find messages from God in places other than the Bible. And uh, this is something that is just an ongoing problem for humans. Uh, we want to find messages from God 
in the weather. Or uh, one time I heard about a woman who uh, was having a bad day already, and then uh, she had a bunch of jars full of honey in her back seat of her car, and they all tipped over, over on the drive home and made a big sticky mess in the back seat. And she asked her pastor, well, what, what do you think God is trying to tell me? And he said, maybe he's trying to tell you you should put the lids on tighter. <laughs> no. And, and this, is, this is the thing. We, we think, well, if, if I just keep my eyes and ears open, I'll get messages from God. And the writer he, to the Hebrews here says, yeah, it's true. In the past, God spoke to uh, believers in a lot of different ways and at many different times. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through Jesus. And so we, we really only need the writings of Jesus' followers, the apostles, uh, and uh, the accounts of, of Christ's life in order to give us messages from God. Anything else really is a message from the devil. Right, and then talking too about Jesus with verse 5, uh, you know, he's, the writer is saying that Jesus is superior to the angels because he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So there is that mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's beyond our understanding. Thanksgiving at our house, we had a family over, and after dinner, uh, I kind of did an impromptu Bible study with, uh, with, the, with a couple that were close to my age. My girls said later on, well, Dad, you had your pastor voice. And I said, I didn't know I had a pastor voice. So they go, oh, yeah, you have a pastor voice. But one of the first questions the husband asked was about the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, he was thinking that with all the questions he asked, like, were there dinosaurs on the, on the ark and about uh, radiation, dating, carbon dating, and all this other stuff, you know, I think he was, those are things that he could ask in his workplace and Christians would go, oh, I don't know how to answer, but you know, I think I've been doing this thing for a little while. I was up to the task. And the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery. And yet there is that relationship of the Son to the Father that the writer says uh, none of the angels have this kind of close relationship. Again, going back to the Athanasian Creed, we worship one God in three persons and three persons in one God without mixing the persons or dividing the divine being. For each person, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is distinct, but the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one equal in glory and co-eternal in majesty. And you have that closeness of the Trinity described when the writer says, begotten. He is from the Father. I, you know, you were saying before you could just write a New Testament book by quoting Old Testament scriptures, but I think actually what you're doing is trying to write a New Testament book by uh, using all the parts of the Athanasian Creed. <laughs> that's, that's the last one for right now. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't mind hearing the Athanasian Creed, so please continue. Well, I figure and since, since we all only listen to the Athanasian Creed, Trinity Sunday, it'd be good to hear it. Other times. I actually, you know, I mentioned before this, if Hebrews one being a epistle for Christmas Day, uh, and other other times that uh, I used the Athanasian Creed when I was in the parish ministry was uh, uh, Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, a good one would be uh, the baptism of our Lord or Transfiguration. Um, you've got uh, very strong themes of the Trinity in in both of those. Um, I'm ready to. Move on to chapter 2 unless you had more. Just the last, uh, the last one I want to bring up is verse 13. Uh, the writer says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet? So again, the writer is comparing the angels are great, but Jesus, because he's God's son, is greater, and that all things are under his feet. And one of the pieces of artwork that we have at our Racine campus during the season of end times is Jesus sitting on his throne and then the earth under his feet. And that's based on uh, this passage where the writer is quoting Psalm 110, that everything is a footstool under his feet. In chapter 2, we get uh, another of those Old Testament quotes that uh, Pastor Zazu mentioned. Um, and uh, it's, the, it's the Psalm 8. 
This the Psalm eight, yes. That's how important it is. It's I call it the 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 Psalm eight. Um, but uh, it's a beautiful psalm. Uh, one of the things it talks about is how the little children can have faith and even confess their faith uh, out of the mouths of infants and uh, nursing babies you have ordained praise. Um, but uh, one of the things David writes in that psalm is, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you look after him? Now, this is primarily talking about Christ. Uh, that's the writer to the Hebrews is making, making points about Christ and how he's a superior savior. Uh, but it's also true of mankind, and I often think of that when I'm, I'm driving at night and you look up and you can see the, the galaxies and the universe out, out in outer space. Uh, well, people long ago could see that too, and they knew that uh, as much as we think they were backwards thinking unenlightened sheep herders, uh, they, they could sense that the universe was immense and, and much larger than we can even grasp. And when you think of how big that is, and now you know science and uh, uh, satellite imagery and so forth are showing us how big and expansive the universe is, um, it is remarkable that God cares about these little biological life forms at all uh, when he's got so many other creations that are so massive and beautiful that he could care about. Yeah, that uh, chapter 2, verse 1 is interesting. He writes, we need to pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So what's the imagery there, Jeremy, of drifting away? What's the, what's the warning he's giving? Uh, I would imagine it has to do with um, not falling away from the faith. Yeah, yeah and uh, I'm doing a sermon series right now during Advent, both sermon and Bible class series on wokeness. And it's, it's terrifying. Pastor Bauer, who's uh, Pastor Lightenin's partner here at Shoreland, uh, he was doing this the sermon and Bible study for me at one campus on Sunday. And he said, too, when I came over to Shoreland, he goes, that's a tough Bible study you know, to talk about wokeness, to talk about critical race theory and uh, how black people are viewed always as victims and white people are always viewed as oppressors and that any kind of sexual abomination is supposed to be uh, pleasant and pleasing. And yet, you know, the whole thing is uh, that our young people can easily drift into this thinking because it's this wokeness is in our culture, in our workplace, corporations, military, Hollywood, media. And so uh, the idea isn't not just not necessarily in this series to talk about how bad this is, but it's to prepare our people, especially our young people. And people you know, my, my age and your age that are maybe in a regular workplace so they can give an answer. Uh, and the way that we remain strong so we don't drift away from Christ through this wokeness is partaking the Lord's Supper, reading and studying and gathering together around God's word, encouraging fellow Christians, recruiting other Christians. Uh, I think that... Uh Again, you, I'm, I'm now going to point you to Christ. <laughs> uh, you pointed me to Christ before. He's the one who started, or who was the subject matter that started chapter 1, and uh, also the subject matter finishing chapter 2. Uh, it, and it, you, you, I notice you do this a lot when you put together services and type up prayers and things, that uh, you like referring to Jesus as our brother. And uh, that's actually the way that the writer here in chapter 2 refers to Jesus, too, that um, uh, for that reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, talking about uh, those who he saves and sanctifies. Uh, and then uh, the other thing I like to say, again, we've got another quote from a psalm here, uh, Psalm 22. That, now, that's the one where we have the very clear prediction of Jesus suffering uh, on the cross, and uh, later on in the psalm, after the suffering part is done, uh, it says, I will declare your name to my brothers. Within the congregation, I will sing your praise. Uh, so Jesus is calling us brothers. Even though he's God, he, he is also man. And so he says that we are his brothers. We are siblings or brothers and sisters with him. 
And uh, the, what I always like to tell people is whenever you're reading the Psalms, and if they don't make sense, if the Psalm you're reading does not make sense, just imagine Jesus saying it, and it will start, it will start to make a lot more sense. Yeah, that uh, verse... Uh, verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's a powerful statement. I, I really want you as listeners to think about that. Uh, up here about two weeks ago, there was uh, a horrific tragedy, uh, murder. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I call it that because if you're watching mainstream media, they've kind of just forgotten all about it. But where a, a man took his SUV and he drove through the parade in Waukesha, uh, killing a number of people, uh, especially one was a young young boy, eight years old, I think. We just had um, today here at Shoreland. Uh, I don't own any baseball jersey myself, but uh, it was uh, baseball jerseys. Everybody was to wear a baseball jersey as uh, a commemoration as uh, jerseys for Jackson. I think is what because he liked was, baseball and like Jackson was his name. I yeah. think yeah. So and I, and I bring that up that here is this this man who injured probably 30 people, killed a, a, a scores of people, and I can't imagine what his siblings, his parents, if he has children, I don't know what his family would do with that news. You know, I would probably think that you would refuse interviews if your family get out of town, change your name. I bring that up because we. As brothers and sisters of Christ, we are like that Waukesha murderer. Mm -hmm. that is fan that's a fantastic yeah. thought. And yet, what does Jesus do? He is not ashamed to call us murderers as his brothers. To call us, he's not ashamed to call us brothers, yeah. even though we are murderers. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, and that's what I had on that. But then, uh, yeah, verses 14 and following, uh, since... The children share flesh and blood. He, being Jesus, also shared the same flesh and blood so that through death he would destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So why did Jesus have to be made like his brothers in every way? When I teach that in my catechism classes, I teach uh, for four reasons that he had to become like us, God becoming man in his incarnation so that he could live under the law because as God, he would be above the law and so that he could be able to die because as God, he can't die. But he remains God so that he can keep the law perfectly in our place and then so that as, as God and man together, he can die but then pay for the sins of the entire world. So the key is for us to understand Jesus has to be true God and true man to be able to save us as man and women. Yeah. Uh, are you ready for chapter three? Uh, one, one quote I found on verse 18 from Martin sure. Luther, so I figured I better bring it in. Please. Uh, indeed, because he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Martin Luther writes of this, Christ became incarnate for our sakes in order that we might enter into a great glory that our flesh and blood and skin and hair, hands and feet, stomach and back might reside in heaven as God does. I've heard a great pastor once say, we have a very fleshy God. Hmm. Uh, he, he's just pointing out uh, not only that Jesus took on human flesh uh, and blood and bone for us, but also that, that he, he appreciates and, and loves our sinful flesh and blood and bone and, and redeemed it. Um, yeah, and I think I, I said this in my midweek Advent sermon on Psalm 22 of the King of Glory comes. 24. 24, sorry. Yeah, 24. That... Uh, that Jesus was able to defeat death by becoming human so that he could die and rise from the dead. That he defeated sin by never once giving in to the temptation to sin. He defeated the devil by stepping down with his very human bruised heel on the serpent's head. And one of the things I, I do like to say is, uh, I use the phrase divinely human just to remind our people he is divine, but he is human. Because sometimes, because it's easy, whether you're a teacher or a preacher, to emphasize one thing, either his divinity or his humanity, and that's when we get stuck in false doctrine. And so to 
help myself emphasize to my people he's both God and man. I use the phrase divinely human. Yeah, it's, it's like I, I, when I hear students, and this wasn't so much even here at Shoreland, but even in confirmation when I taught grade schoolers, uh, that they would say things like, well, remember how, uh, remember that time when God walked on water? Or remember that time when uh, uh, God turned the water into wine? And I, and I always try to say, you mean Jesus? Uh, it, because they're right, it is God, but uh, it's not just God up in heaven working the miracle of water into wine. It's, it's this man that is also drinking. He probably drank the wine uh, after he made it for the couple. Um, in chapter 3, uh, the writer uses a term for Jesus that you don't often think of. Usually when you hear apostle, you think of the followers or the disciples of Jesus, Peter and, and Jude and uh, Simon uh, the Zealot and so forth. Um, but uh, verse 1 actually calls Jesus the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Um, I suppose that's another reminder of the incarnation, uh, that God sent Jesus into the world. Uh, but uh, again, you can think of the readers of this Hebrews letter uh, thinking to themselves, oh, you know, that hero from uh, days gone by, Moses, I, I once heard a guy talk about uh, Peter, James, and John maybe having uh, a Moses baseball card that they, you know, they, they, they're these big fans of the heroes from the, from the Old Testament. Uh, and, and you can see the writer to the Hebrews talking to those kinds of people and saying, yeah, Moses is great. Moses was actually faithful in all of God's house. Moses was a big deal. You know who was a bigger deal? Jesus. And, uh, and, then, and then verse 4 is a, a good thing to uh, think about when it comes to creationism. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, this world did not evolve. And anybody who says so, uh, you have to point out, well, everything is built it, that is complex. Everything that is, uh, uh, you know, um, I, I injured my nose a while ago. And uh, a piece of wood I was chopping flew up and hit me, hit my nose, and uh, it, I put a Band-Aid on it, and everybody said it looked like I was in a fight because I had this Band-Aid on my nose. And I told them the story, and more than one person said, oh, you sh why weren't you wearing goggles? And so now I wear goggles, but the other thing they say is, uh, eyeballs are harder to replace. And... Uh, you think of that. With all of our ingenuity and technology, we um, have not come up with a prosthetic eye that works. And um, uh, you cannot tell me, if, if you would walk into the middle of a, a forest or a cornfield and there sits a fully functioning computer, you would not say, oh, I bet this computer just kind of evolved out of the ground. Somebody has to build it. Uh, and that's the point in verse 4. Everything, God is the built, every, uh, every house is built by someone, and God is the one who built everything. Yeah, and with that verse, uh, I'd encourage you with apologetics to look up answers in Genesis. They're excellent. But also look at our own Lutheran Science Institute, their wells. And I read an article by them the other day talking about some, some scientists that are saying, uh, they're disagreeing with the Big Bang Theory. So that's a big deal. But they're not believing in creationism or even intelligent design. They're saying that maybe, maybe it's a possibility that the universe just always existed mm -hmm. and never came into being. And because they're, they're finally realizing, at least these guys are, you know, that matter cannot be created. That's an actual law of science. So it had to come from somewhere, and the atoms can't get any smaller than the atoms. So you can't just have an infinite amount of atoms of the universe all condensed to all of a sudden explode into a big bang. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're doubting their own other atheistic scientists. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't work either of, well, the universe existed. No, God existed. Uh, Go, just, I just want to touch on this with verse 1 of Holy Brothers, focus your attention on Jesus. And I want to real quickly tell the story of Red because Red's wife, Arlene, was called home to heaven the other day, one of our members, and uh, her Christian funeral will be next week. But it reminded me, uh, the son who's a member, reminded me of going to uh, his stepfather's 
House years ago, it had to be like 15, 16 years ago. Red was not a member, but his wife and stepchildren didn't even know if he was Christian. So they knew he was dying of cancer in his home, and they asked me to come. And so I went, and I was visiting with Red, and Red started saying, well, Pastor, you know, I really don't like it that I can't come to your church and take communion. And I said, Red, you're never going to be able to come to our church. You're stuck here at home. You're dying. So let's talk about Jesus. He's, oh, okay. But I just bring that up (laughs) in that people are going to want to talk about all kinds of other things and get you off the topic. And they may be good, even biblical, scriptural things. But you have to direct your attention, like I tried to do with Red. Let's 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 talk about Jesus. Now, once you know Jesus as your Savior, and you're going to be on His side, the winning side, uh, on the last day. Now, let's talk about the other things. Mm. Yeah, that's the right place to start. And really, even those other things, after you've covered them, uh, they should not become the main fixation point of your faith either. Uh, it should still be Jesus. And those other things are there. They're, they're in place, whether it's closed communion or roles of men and women or the, any of the Ten Commandments. Uh, they are there not... It's like Jesus said, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, So those other things are only useful insofar as they are pointing us to Christ and encouraging us in our faith. Well, and then uh, encouraging your faith, when I jump to verse 13, the writer says that, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Doesn't that sound like it would be written by a son of encouragement? (laughs) So what does that mean? Jeremy, encourage each other daily as long as it's today. Because what's going to happen possibly tomorrow? We don't know. Yeah. We, we, you, you, we, you or I could die or uh, lots of horrible things could happen. Who knows? Yeah. And so uh, when I was reading that verse, you know, it reminded me of G- when Jesus says uh, that, uh, no, I just lost the name of the verse because I'm listening to the, your teens outside. Uh, oh, work, work while it is day. Uh, you know, like one of our second graders reminded me of this yesterday, and maybe this second grader happened to be your son, Jeremy, but he comes into the classroom after recess. My son's in first grade. Okay, I was in first grade. You're, you're right. I, 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 go, I went and read in all four classes. Yeah, he was in oh. first grade, and he came in after recess, and he was all excited. Yeah, today is Thursday. And I, I told him, well, it's Thursday all day today. I was, oh, yeah. Uh, but tomorrow... It would be Friday. When the sun goes down, the day is over. And once the sun goes down, now today is over. And if we're not believing in Jesus and him as the focus, now we've lost out on an eternity of todays Mm. in heaven. That's what Uh, I got. You're just reminding me of how if you're at a Water of Life listener and, and I was... Uh, giving a soapbox when I was preaching there and doing the announcements and I sort of uh, passive aggressively pressured the congregation to make sure they come to if you want to keep Christ in Christmas then uh, come to worship on Christmas Day uh, is what I said and uh, and I was sort of saying I know everybody loves to come on the 24th but uh, that's not Christmas the 25th mm-hmm. is Christmas well uh, one of our members who uh, used to teach at the seminary pointed out to me that uh, if you go by the Hebrew way of reckoning time, the day actually starts at sundown. So uh, Christmas Eve services on uh, Christmas Day by Jewish reckoning. Okay. Yeah. But Christmas Day, you don't want to miss that either in your churches. Because at least for us as water of life, that's the day that you're going to be celebrating God in a box. That's the gospel lesson. Jesus as the word made flesh. So God in the box of the manger. And then... You know, if the pastor's right, he's not just talking about Jesus' birth. He's talking about God in the box or God laid on the altar of the cross. And then your church, hopefully, like ours is, is celebrating communion on Christmas Day. And then you've got God on the altar for communion. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to miss all, all of that on Christmas Day because you're not, that's not really the focus of Christmas Eve, but it is the focus of Christmas Day. So uh, these Hebrews that uh, the writer is uh, talking to, they've 
had uh, a fixation with angels and a fixation with Moses. Uh, one of the ones that we haven't really touched on uh, yet, but uh, comes up in chapter four, is the Sabbath. And the great thing about the Sabbath was it was a day off. It was a day to rest and relax and, and to recuperate from your work, um, or at the very least to do a different kind of work than you've been doing all week long. Um, and uh, uh, as great as that rest is, the writer uses it to compare to the greater rest that Jesus brings. Yeah, and he's talking about the Old Testament people in that they gave up that rest. And well, I'll ask you, Jeremy, how are we today in the New Testament, in our churches as Christians, how are we very similar to those Old Testament people when it comes to giving up our rest in God? Uh, well, the first thing, when you added in God, uh, then in my mind that really keeps it in the realm of justification and and how our sins are constantly forgiven in Jesus. And so the, there's, really no, there's really no way to, uh, other than unbelief, there's no way to give that up. I, I was, before you said in God, I was going to say um, how we like to work ourselves to death. Mm -hmm. and, and we just... Um, uh, don't ever say no, or we uh, uh, constantly are trying to uh, keep everybody happy, and um, that uh, I don't know. Why don't you take yeah, that and, where yeah, you're and going? Then, yeah, and then we work and work and work, and so we're so tired. So what do we do on Sunday morning when it comes to worship? Well, we've got to rest, but we rest away from the place where God wants us to rest in his word and sacrament. And then that's the exact opposite thing. And I've heard this from students here at Shoreland, and it was really, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, it was awful hearing it from a parent of Shoreland students saying, well, you know, my kids hear God's word every day at Shoreland, so they don't need to come to church on Sunday. It's like, no, that's the exact wrong thing uh, that you need to be telling your kids because that's what I've been preaching to these kids for generations of these kids since I've been here. They think that that's enough. Well, I, we'll have to compare notes after we get done recording because okay. I actually, uh, I, I know quite a few of our Water of Life uh, members that have students here. And uh, I've started making some comments that uh, if I haven't seen them in church for a while, uh, and uh, actually if I've, if I've preached at Water of Life and I've been at every service, you know, I think yeah. it's one thing if I'm just going to the early service and somebody else goes to a different one. But when I preach at Water of Life and do all the services at both campuses over two weeks, and I never see these uh, members of ours. Uh, I, I, do, I try to put in Good. the same message on this side here. Yeah, and so the key is we need to find rest because, like you said, we work ourselves all the time. And you know, we like to have five-day work weeks, although I think those are going away. But you know, in uh, this time, in the first century, and before that, it's six-day work weeks, and God says, You've got to take a rest for your bodies, your minds, and especially your souls. But that, uh, that encouragement for the Old Testament and New Testament believers is exactly the same encouragement that we need to hear today. I'd, I'd like to dive into the topic in verse 12 of the sword of the Spirit, awesome. the, the Word of God. Um, and uh, that is, uh, yeah, we, we like... We like our, our superheroes and our uh, action movies and our, our weaponry words. Um, maybe we should go throw some axes after this. Uh, oh, yeah, that's actually part of my notes, so. Oh, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> the writer calls God, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the point of dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, even being able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. And I got to admit, as a pastor, this is one of the neatest things that I see or th that I get to do, that I still get to do, but got to do even more in the parish, is uh, when you meet with people who are either, you know, caught in some kind of stubborn, willful sinning, or they are troubled by uh, some, some problem in their life, or uh, they're having fights or anger with a fellow believer, and you... you you figure out just enough about the situation that you think of a Bible passage, and then you share that Bible passage with them, and it is amazing to see 
that word of God just slicing right down to the heart of the issue. Uh, and that's exactly what God says about his word in this verse. Right. Just like uh, Acts 2 verse 37, where Peter preached on Pentecost and then Luke writes, they were cut to the heart. That's like what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting here, too, is that uh, the word of the Lord is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And the point is you can't divide uh, soul and spirit. You can't divide uh, joints and marrow. But that's how sharp God's word is, that it can. So, you know, talking about geeky stuff, it's sharper than Luke Skywalker's lightsaber <laughs> in Star Wars. It's sharper than Aragon's sword, uh, Andril in Lord of the Rings. Here's a good one for you. It's sharper than Connor McCloud's long sword in Highlander. Ah, I, I think I've seen an episode right. or two of Highlander. So there, there's my references for everyone. That's great. Uh, <laughs> And you, you, it's it's not the kind of it's even sharper than anything you would uh, see on Forged in Fire. I was just watching that. Ep- that's what I do during lunch. On um, twenty minutes for lunch, watch episodes of Forged in Fire, and I watch them today making throwing knives. Ooh, there you go. Uh, it, it reminded me of uh, Ephesians six and the armor of God. How uh, it's not just the sword of the spirit, but all all parts of God's word can shield us and protect us from the attacks of Satan. Um, It it gets in at the end of the chapter there, the writer does to uh, Jesus as our great high priest. And uh, that reminds me of a hymn that uh, I I would assume is in our new hymnal. I know it's in Christian worship, the old edition, uh, Jesus, our great high priest. And uh, I love this verse. Um, it is, it is such a great thing to think about, especially when you think about Christ's temptation and when we have to face temptation. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, that is such an awkward, roundabout way to say it. Uh, why, didn't you, why didn't he just say, uh, we have a high priest who can sympathize with there us? But it's that light of tease. It's, it's making the point even stronger by saying, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. He is very able to feel how we feel. Uh, whatever problem it is in life, uh, I heard a classmate once preach a sermon. Uh, I think it was on this text, on verse 15, where he said, you can do this with pretty much anything. Any problem in life, you will be able to find some episode of Jesus' life where he would have felt the same emotion you did, whether it's anger or uh, uh, sadness or jubilance. Ju- is, that, is that a word? Jubilant, jubilance? Yes. Okay. Well, anyway, the point is he can feel the same thing. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. And what's interesting, too, is verse 14, when the writer calls him the great high priest, that's the only time in Scripture that he is referred to by, Jesus is referred to by that title. Uh, And then it says that he has gone through the heavens, uh, so he's ascended into heaven, but he was here on earth as human, taking on the flesh and blood of his brothers and sisters so that he can sympathize with our weaknesses, including our physical weaknesses, the physical weaknesses to avoid persecution. Because I think that's why, that's one of the reasons why the writer is writing this. Uh, The very first chapter is talking about, you know, drifting away from the faith because of the persecution uh, on these Jews to return back to the Jewish religion because they think that uh, the tabernacle and the high priests and the angels and Moses are good enough. And so the writer is saying, no, they're not because Jesus is better than angels and Moses and the tabernacle and high priests. So we're going to get into more of the high priest in chapter 5. But Jesus you know, he wished in the Garden of Gethsemane that the cup of God's wrath could be taken from him. And yet, what did he do? He approaches the throne of grace with confidence there in the garden, and that's the encouragement of the writer for us. Jesus, as this is the mystery of the Trinity, Jesus, as the Son of God, is approaching God the Father in the garden, like he did so many other times when he went off by himself in the wilderness to pray. He approaches the mystery of the Trinity to pray, well, we're just mere humans. 
We're his brothers and sisters, but we're mere humans. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And I say that too, if, again, if you're paying attention when uh, we now, I'll often say in worship, when it's time to pray the prayer of the church, let us now approach the throne of grace with our prayers. Mm. I, I didn't realize I was quoting this verse, but God Did, gave me the, that, those words. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you fill yourself up with words of Scripture, and you, you soak in the Holy Spirit in, in the Bible, and uh, a lot of times that happens. You just end up spewing things out that are they're divinely inspired, not because you got some kind of special message from God in your ear, but because you uh, heard his words in your ear and they came out in your form of speech. Um, so you know how, um, I'm going to get into chapter five now, and uh, you know how the, I don't know how much exposure you've had to uh, Southern charm and, and the style of uh, uh, women in the South to, you know, grandmas and, and ladies to say, bless your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have that? You were in Kentucky? A little bit. Did, did they ever say, oh, bless your heart? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. When they yeah, s- right, right after I ordered grits, uh, biscuits and, gri- and grits and gravy, yeah. Did, now, okay. Did, did you ever hear it? It, it? See, this is coming from my days in Oklahoma, uh, if somebody would say, oh, bless your heart, uh, that would actually mean, oh, you poor, <laughs> kind of dim, dim-witted uh, uh, soul, you're, 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 not, you're not too bright, are you? But I love you anyway. That's kind of, that's kind of the spirit of it. Oh, bless your heart. Well, th- th- as much as uh, I've been saying about Barnabas writing this uh, book of Hebrews, and I, th- I still do think that's a great idea. Um, it, it's interesting how his encouragement can kind of turn into an "ah, bless your heart" encouragement, uh, because he's talking about Jesus in verses in verse one and two, and in verse two he says uh, that Christ is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also weak in many ways. Um, He's, ca- he's calling the people ignorant. Mm-hmm. He's saying, that you, if you're going astray, you're drifting off. We've heard him give that warning before in this book. Uh, well, that's okay, because Jesus knows how to deal with ignorant, dumb people like you. <laughs> and and, and little on, a little on later, too, um, uh, I know I'm, I'm kind of skipping ahead, and we mm-hmm. can come back to this later, but in verse 11, uh, it says, We have much to say about this, and it is difficult to explain, because you have become too lazy to listen. <laughs> it's sort of, oh, bless your heart. Yeah. I'm going to encourage you, and I love you, but man, you're not too bright. Yeah. And then, uh, that you are, you are priest forever like Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? Uh, we don't know much about him, but he is a character in the Old Testament that when Abraham got done rescuing Lot from the uh, kings who had ransacked and kidnapped the, the whole territory, uh, Melchizedek brought uh, bread and wine and, uh, and uh, had an interaction with Abraham after that battle. Yeah. And then... Uh, the writer acknowledges that, like you said in verse 11, the, the subject of Jesus being a priest like Melchizedek because uh, the people to whom he is writing must have thought that Jesus had no authority to lay claim to a high priesthood. You know, he is a rabbi. He's a teacher. He's not a high priest. And so what the writer is doing here, and he'll do later on, uh, in chapter 6 is that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But it's hard to understand this. Uh, and yeah, he is frustrated with his readers because he says by this time they should be more mature in their knowledge and faith, but they're still immature and in danger of being drawn back into Judaism. Uh, I think it's kind of like dealing with teenagers, whether they're your, in your household or my household or in this building, uh, they can be immature, can't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They can be very intuitive and very intelligent. Uh, you know, I like to say that, uh, and this is, this is what I'll tell people if I want them to feel sorry for me, that I raised three teenage daughters in my house at the same time. Mm. You know, so you bless your heart. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. Bless your heart. Uh, But I think it's the same way. Again, when I was thinking about this as a congregation 
when I got here in Racine 17 years ago is they had been immature in their faith in that they had a pastor who was a charlatan. You know, for uh, three and a half, four years, he was teaching false doctrine, specifically on the Lord's Supper, even getting to the point that uh, it is no longer Christ's body and blood, it's just a symbol. Hmm. Not, not scriptural, definitely not Lutheran then. And he, he ended up getting kicked out of the church body. He was that bad. And, uh, you know, when I got here then for an entire year, I took the entire congregation, whoever came to Sunday morning Bible study, we went through my adult catechism class. Mm-hmm. That was Sunday morning going through the milk of God's word, the, the easier teaching. So what would you think would be, Jeremy, maybe milk of God's word compared to what would be the meat of God's word? So what's, what might be milk teachings? Um, probably something like, uh, God will provide your daily bread. Okay. He'll, he'll, uh, he'll make sure that you always have enough to eat. And I think that would probably be something where, uh, even an unbeliever could say, oh yeah, I notice I always, I always have a refrigerator full of food or, uh, you know, money for a meal. And I think maybe some of the commandments, unless oh, you start yeah. digging deeper. Yeah, yeah. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. They even uh, non-Christians know those things. So what would be meat doctrines? Uh, Doctrine. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, well, the Trinity, mm-hmm. uh, election, uh, the real presence of Jesus' body and blood in communion, um, uh, the the mystic union of Christ's body, the church, that uh, we are all members of, of uh, his body, and he is the head. Yeah, how can he be complete and God and all uh, sovereign unto himself, and yet he says, I'm incomplete without my body, the church. That's, that's a kind of a cool thing to think about. Sure, and I would, I would throw in other ones like providence, you know, that God is in control of everything, and yet things aren't fated. You know, he's in control. He knows all things, but he doesn't, uh, and he directs all things, but he doesn't make bad people, like the guy in Waukesha, drive through the mm. parade. But he uses what happened in, in Waukesha. So to wrap your head around that, or uh, just the end times, or mm. church fellowship, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, milk teachings, and that's really a lot of, you know, maybe Bible 101. Uh, you know, think of college or, or high school. You've got your 101 classes, your, your basics. Uh, in, your, in your catechism class or adult catechism, that you're going through those milk teachings. But then the writer says you need to graduate. You need to start chewing on the meat. So we came here today. There's a refreshment. Jeremy set out and beef jerky. You got to chew on it a little bit, mm-hmm. and that's good. But it's more refreshing than if it was just your mother's milk. But, uh, yeah, think of what uh, just from a nutritional level. Uh, what is meat? It is uh, protein. It actually builds muscle, and uh, I think that's an interesting mm. thing to grasp uh, spiritually speaking. That if you actually want to. Uh, wield that sword of the uh, spirit that can divide bone and marrow, uh, you got to have some pretty big muscles in order to lift that uh, heavy sword and use it properly. Uh, and so you, you can't just uh, consume dairy products and expect to get big muscles. You can't just be a vegan or a vegetarian. You've got to be eating meat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, what else do you have on, on this chapter before we wrap it up? Oh, uh, I, I think that was pretty well it. Uh, I, I did think that uh, verse 4 is worth noting. No one takes this honor on himself, but he is called by God just as Aaron was. Um, that uh, when uh, I think it's worth being cautious when you hear people talk about uh, their ministry, that, uh, I, oh, I, I, I do this uh, little uh, uh, charity work that is my, my little passion of, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, knitting or baking cookies or things like that, and, and saying, this is my ministry. Um, well, a ministry is something that you are called to that other people ask you to do. And uh, just, just, you know, taking up a hobby is a good and God-pleasing thing, and it may very well serve the, the church. 
and that's good. Uh, but uh, when it comes to a divine calling, whether it's a Sunday school teacher or a grade school teacher, a principal or a pastor uh, of a congregation or a teacher at a high school or a college, uh, whatever it might be, um, this is not something that you say out of the blue. Uh, I'm going to make this my ministry. This is something that, that no one takes this honor on himself, uh, but he is called by God, just as Aaron was. Uh, this needs to be something that other believers say, I want you to do this. We, we want you to do this for us, not that you uh, uh, forced yourself into the position. Well, and, and so the listeners, if you're not part of Water of Life, you don't, may not know this, talking about divine calls, is uh, a week and a half ago I received a divine call to serve the saints at Emmanuel and Woodville, which is northeast, northwest side of Wisconsin. And so I spent a lot of time the last week and a half talking to members at Water of Life and leaders at uh, Emmanuel of you know, where do I feel God is calling me uh, to serve? And uh, the congregation in Emmanuel, talking to leaders, I said, I can't imagine how many times you've had the same conversations with pastors because they've called 13 pastors from the field plus twice trying to go to the seminary for a pastor. So I'm the 16th pastor. Mm -hmm. And yet talking to the president of the congregation last night, I asked him a question. He goes, well, pastor, I can honestly say I've never been asked that question before. Because the main question I've been uh, asking my members as well as uh, the leaders up there, and it's the last question I asked them is, and I referenced the movie Taken. And in the movie Taken, you've got Liam Neeson, uh, his character is the father, and his teenage daughter's in France, and she's abducted. She's taken from underneath the bed, but she's on the phone with her dad in America. And the kidnapper answered, you know, he gets on the phone, and then Liam Neeson's character, uh, who used to be like a spy and an assassin, he says, I have a certain set of skills. And he goes on to explain what those skills are. Are you about to compare yourself to Liam Neeson? Yes. And what I, what I do is, and I tell people, over 25 years in the ministry, God has given me a certain set of skills. Being in the you know, whole missionary for eight years, uh, following a pastor that was teaching false doctrine in our congregation, merging a church, being on the mission board, being on the shoreland board and with our grade school, it's a certain set of skills. And so the key is for me, just like with you coming here two years ago, where, does, where do I feel God's kingdom needs me in my set of skills most. And I'm not trying to be arrogant or so forth, but knowing hey, God has specifically gifted me with these, with a calling, with these gifts over 25 years, where does God, where do I feel that God's kingdom, his church as a whole, can best use those gifts at this time? So are you going to go to Woodville and start karate kicking and cracking skulls like Liam Neeson? Uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'll, I'll be announcing my decision, not this Sunday, but the following Sunday. Well, we, we would not want you to be taken by them. <laughs> nice. Uh, last thing, I wanted to end again with a quote from Martin Luther on those last verses about milk and meat. Uh, he, he warns about losing ground and growing complacent in the word when he says, uh, God be praised. The Bible is now in the hands of the people. As the saying goes, the cow walks in grass up to its belly. Let us use the word so that we shall not be obliged to devour stones and thistles again, as we had to heretofore under the papacy, but that we bring forth much fruit and become the Lord's disciples. So in our confessional Lutheran church, we've been blessed with the privilege of grazing in grass up to our stomachs. And we have the truth of the gospel of God's salvation in Christ at its fullness. So we need to be warned, whether we're pastors or teachers or lay people, not to become tired of listening. And we must be warned about feeding on sources that are outside of our confu confessional Lutheran circles. Thank you for, I think I got that. Uh, I was wondering what was Luther talking about, the cow walks and grass up to its belly. But I think, you, so you're saying the, the, the cow has all kinds of food he could eat all around. Yeah. Or she. Yeah, we have, we have food all around us. You know, on Sunday morning, you've got 
probably numerous worship services, maybe two worship services, a Bible study, your pastor's Bible studies. You've got this podcast. You've got Time of Grace devotions and Wells meditations and Ford in Christ and so many other things. And There's it, not a lot of excuse for not eating. Yeah. God's word is like long grass up to our bellies. And what do we do? We ignore it and we go, what he says, we eat the thistles and, and rocks. So let's, let's dig into the good stuff, yeah. to the meat. So next week, we're going to continue with our study of Hebrews. Uh, so we'll be studying four chapters, Hebrews 6 through 9. Uh, and Jeremy, I know you know this because you're getting ready on Disney Plus to watch The Mandalorian, right? Even though it's been out for a few years. Sure. Yeah. And there's a new, so once you watch The Mandalorian, at the end of December, the book of Boba Fett is coming out. So uh, in honor of those Star Wars uh, TV shows, this is Pastor Zarling with Count Dooku. Stay thirsty, my friends, and then drink deeply from the water of life. Does it even have anything to do with lightning? Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs>